quite like uh, the passage that we just read to test our commitment to the clarity and authority of the word of God, is there? Uh, Just as with 1 Timothy 2 this morning, the combination of the sheer number of difficulties in the text, together with its violent clash with our culture, uh, makes us long just to kick it into the long grass where we can uh, rather conveniently, perhaps, ignore it. Well, if that was the case with 1 Timothy 2 this morning, there are even more reasons uh, to do that with 1 Corinthians 11. Firstly, because the idea that the personal grooming of men and women in a first century Roman colony should have any bearings on our lives today seems bizarre in a world that is suspicious of gender distinction and hostile towards anything that threatens personal freedom. It just seems a a long way away from relevant, doesn't it? Haircuts and hats in first century Corinth. And secondly, because the difficulties in the passage are real. In these 15 verses, we find almost as many conundrums. Just for starters, there is the meaning and nature of prophecy, something we're going to have to come back to uh, later on in 1 Corinthians 14. There is the question of how this passage, which says women can pray and prophesy, relates to other passages in which Paul forbids women from speaking at all in church. There is a whole raft of questions to do with what Paul is thinking of when he's talking about head coverings, whether these customs connect to hairstyles or haircuts or some other thing. And then did you notice as we read the passage, just as we thought the passage was getting difficult, uh, Paul cheerfully lobs in that wonderful phrase, and because of the angels in verse 10, without any explanation at all. It kind of feels like he's on a bit of a roll, so he might as well just make it even more difficult. But just as I suggested this morning, our commitment to the clarity and authority of the Bible as evangelical Christians, that is, as Bible-believing Christians, will not allow the difficulties of a passage to excuse our timidity about its message. Instead, that doctrine of Scripture, by which we understand that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, 2 Timothy 3, will drive us to do two things. Firstly, that doctrine of Scripture will make us work hard. We're going to work hard for the next hour and really grapple with this text. And I don't know about you, but that's painful, isn't it? I think thinking is very painful. So if you were to come into my study at the beginning of 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 a period when I've got to really think, you'll find a very tidy desk. You'll find a very empty in tray because I find anything is easier than actually thinking. But as I say to our students sometimes, while it's hard, thinking is rarely fatal. And sometimes we just have to grapple with God's word with a humility and a hunger to submit to it. But that hard work is not enough on its own. So the second thing our doctrine of scripture will do is to drive us further until we arrive not just at the point of understanding, but at the point of delighting. We want to not only get it, but to love it. 
That is, a passage like this must never feel like a parent giving a child a dose of cod liver oil with a rather embarrassed apology. We know it's good for them, but we wish we didn't have to do it. Instead, the word of God should always lead us to say with King David in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Do you think after this hour, we could be saying that about this passage? Well, that's our goal this afternoon, to move from reluctant acceptance to joyful delight. And once again, we need to see that this passage is both clear and good. Well, let's get to work then uh, with 1 Corinthians 11. And the first surprise, I think, is Paul's praise for what we know is quite a dysfunctional church. So have a look with me at verse 2. I praise you, he says, for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. How is it that Paul is able to praise the Corinthian church despite everything we learn from the letter that they have got so badly wrong? The answer is because of what he believes fundamentally about this church. So if you've got the Bible open, just turn back with me uh, to chapter 1 for a moment and look at chapter 1, verse 1, where in his opening greeting, he calls them the church of God in Corinth. And it's the kind of thing that you, you might just skim over because it's the way Paul often greets a church But I think it's no accident that he says that right at the beginning of this letter when he's going to pile on some criticisms of this church. He begins by reminding them that they are a church of God. That is, despite all their problems, despite their immaturity, they are a church that God has created for his own purposes. In fact, I think as you read chapter 1, you realize that Paul is is quite in awe of this little miracle of God's grace. So look over at 27 and 28, verse 27 and 28 in that chapter, when he says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Paul is speaking there about the church in Corinth. They were the things that were not. They didn't exist. But through the preaching of the powerful gospel in pagan Corinth, they are now the things that are. They are something. They are something that matters, a gathering of God's people around Christ, fragile but weak. And in those two verses, 27 and 28, we begin to see that God has got a stunning purpose in mind in creating this church out of nothing. By choosing the foolish, weak, lowly, and despised, Paul obviously wasn't trying to flatter the Corinthians, God is going to shame the world and bring to nothing the godless human order that considers itself wise and strong. It's very important that we see this before we look at the rest of uh, chapter 11 because the church of God in Corinth has been created by God as every local church has to be a place where the world's values are exposed 
as the church submits to God's order. It's, it's really important that we see that, and we're going to uh, follow that uh, theme through the passage and on into chapter 14 as well. So this little church has to display the foolishness of God in contrast to the world's wisdom. They are to be a place where you can see the weakness of God in contrast to the world's strength. So this little church is to hold up a mirror to the world where the world will learn of its shame in its disordering of God's uh, relationships. And as it does that, it's going to point the world to the gospel and it's going to point the world to a new order in the new creation. And so this little ordinary local church with all its faults is to be a little window into the future. And I wonder if you've ever, ever seen uh, your church in this way, a little microcosm, a little window that will display God's glory and wisdom for the world. And they're to do that as they get on with the work of proclaiming God's gospel in a shameful and foolish world. And that is the case for every true church of God. This awesome fact is true for this church, it's true for the church I serve as well. However many faults we find in our churches, it is to be a, a live expression of what God is doing in this world and what he's taking uh, the world towards. Well, how are they to do that? How are they to live in a way that will turn the world's wisdom on its head and reveal the wisdom and glory and power of God? We'll turn back to chapter 11 now with me where we'll spend the rest of our time. Look again at verse 2, and you'll see that they're to do that by remembering Paul in everything and for holding to the teachings or traditions just as he passed them on to them. That's how he begins the chapter. Well, what does he mean by this? Well, in chapter 15, he identifies these teachings or traditions which he passed on to them as the gospel. You might remember in the first few verses of chapter 15, he, he explicitly says that, and then he rehearses the gospel that he taught them. And in chapter 11, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 16, he says that to remember him is to imitate him. So you remember Paul, not just by thinking about him, but by putting his lifestyle into practice. And imitating Paul, as he tells us in chapter 11, verse 1, is to imitate Christ. In particular, at the end of that long argument from chapter 8 to chapter 11, verse 1, in particular, imitate Christ in his self-sacrifice and humility on the cross. Verse 2, then, is not about buttering them up with a bit of flattery before he gets the knife in. It is about gospel integrity. Paul praises the church in Corinth insofar as they remain true to the gospel message Paul taught them and the gospel life he showed them. If that gospel message and gospel life is central to their meetings and their congregational life, then they will do what he said they should do in chapter 1. They will shame the world and reveal the wisdom of God and so fulfill their purpose uh, as a church. Now, as we saw in 1 Timothy 2 this morning, this is Paul's great interest throughout the letters whenever he teaches on these subjects of gender distinction. He wants the churches to conform to the gospel in everything. This 
business of relating together as men and women is part of the way they're going to present the gospel to the world. And it's in this specific context that Paul now speaks of the relationship between men and women. They are to relate as men and women in their church meetings in a way that is in keeping with the gospel and so demonstrates the glory of God in a world full of shame. And to do that, they need to understand something clearly first, and this is what I've called on the outline simply order. We'll have a look with me at verse 3 then, where we're going to spend a fair amount of time, because this really is, is the, the sort of the, the heart, the engine of the whole passage. So have a look at verse 3. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. The fundamental point Paul is making here is that the world in which we live and breathe is a world of order in relationships. This order reflects the nature of God, is built into creation, and is revealed in the gospel. This sentence, then, is the theological engine room of the entire passage. So we're going to pay careful attention to it, beginning with two observations. The first thing to notice is simply that there is an order. Paul wants the Corinthians to see that everyone, except God, has a head. And by head, he just means a leader, someone with authority over him. The woman is a, has a leader. The man has a leader. Even Christ has a leader. And so men and women find themselves within an order of authority and responsibility established by God. The triune God himself exists eternally in an ordered relationship. And he has chosen to mirror that ordered relationship into the human race, his image at creation. And this order is expressed in the order between men and women. There's the first observation. The second thing to notice is that as well as being grounded in the person of God and mirrored in creation, this order is explained in the gospel. So have a look on the screen at the structure of the verse where this comes out. You can see that the verse is set out in three pairs. And uh, I think it's very helpful to see that this verse is not written in the way we might expect. If all Paul wanted to do were establish a basic hierarchy, like a scale or a ladder, he could have put God and Christ at the top, then below them Christ and man, then below them man and woman. But look at the verse in the way that Paul has written it, and notice that instead of doing that basic kind of hierarchy, the relationship between man and woman is sandwiched between the other two pairs. So that on either side of the relationship between man and woman, Paul is saying something about Christ. Christ and his relationship to man on one side, Christ and his relationship to God on the other. And both of those relationships help to explain the one in the middle. He wants to show how the relationship between men and women fits into the wider order of man's submission to Christ and Christ's submission to God the Father on the other. So having made those two basic observations about verse 3, let's take a closer look at what it says about the relationship between men and women. 
Look with me at one line at a time in verse 3. The first line makes a statement about Christ's headship over man. The head of every man is Christ. That is, the risen, exalted Christ, under whom God has put all things, is the head, the leader of every man. And the every is emphasized. It is explicitly in this context that Paul then makes a statement about man's headship over woman. So the second line, the head of the woman is man. Notice that Paul wants to tie male headship over woman to Christ's headship over man. This means that male headship is always exercised under the rule of Christ, who will hold all men to account for the way they've exercised that headship. But Paul also wants to tie male headship to Christ in another way too. It is to be modeled on Christ's headship. How did Christ exercise his headship over the church? Well, Ephesians 5 tells us that he exercised his headship not in a self-serving way, but for the sake of his bride, supremely in his death on the cross. Male headship, under Christ's headship, is to be servant-like and sacrificial, foregoing one's own rights for the sake of another. So now look with me at the third line of the verse. And the head of Christ is God. If the first line paralleled male headship to Christ's headship, the third line parallels women's submission to Christ's submission to God. That means that just as Christ's submission to the Father did not involve Christ in a loss of dignity or value, neither does a woman's submission to man. Just as Christ's submission to the Father was joyful and willing, exercising trust in God, so is female submission to male headship. In other words, whichever place we find ourselves in God's order, and there are only two places, male or female, Jesus has been there before us, and he's got the T-shirt. Do you see that in verse 3? And it's the gospel that shows us this. In the gospel, Christ models both headship and submission. In each case, he does so without any changes in his divine status or compromise in his infinite worth. In each case, he does it in humility for the sake of others. I don't know about you, but I think that's quite remarkable, and it changes the way we think about both headship and submission. That whatever gender we find ourselves born into, we have the privilege of wearing the T-shirt that Christ wore. So men, Christ is ahead. Therefore, in your headship, follow Christ's example of other person-centered sacrifice. Women, Christ has a head. So in your submission, follow his example. Well, we can get rid of that from the screen now. And before we turn to the rest of the passage, uh, four implications from what we've seen so far will help us to listen uh, to Paul's argument that follows. And uh, these are over the page. First implication is that whatever expression of this order, the rest of the passage goes on to describe, 
it should be clear at this point that the order itself is permanent and irreversible, built into the fabric of reality, not a reflection of first century culture or any other culture. So that's the first thing. He, he's going to describe something, and we're going to have to grapple with the, 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 the expression of this order in the passage. But the first thing to say is the order itself is not an expression uh, of culture. Secondly, if that is the case, then we must also see that this ordering of relationships in God's world is good because Christ has modeled it to us. And if this is a surprise to our ears, it might be because we've been deafened by the insistence of our culture that all submission in relationships is ultimately about power and exploitation and gives rise to all kinds of abuse. But when submission is understood in terms of Jesus' headship over the church and Jesus' submission to the Father, we can see, can't we, that submission in and of itself in the New Testament has nothing to do with power and nothing to do with value. And it might be the case that human beings in their sinfulness abuse it, but in the New Testament, submission by its nature has nothing to do with power and it has nothing to do with value. It is characterized by order, equality, and sacrificial love. Thirdly, it is because the gospel is countercultural that an order between men and women will always be countercultural in a fallen world. Notice that God's order for men and women involves an other person centeredness that goes against our sinful nature. It involves sacrificing your rights for the sake of another. And that is always going to be countercultural. There was a story in the news, I don't know if you heard it, about a commuter uh, in London who bought a homeless person a cup of coffee every morning on his way to work. And somehow this little story got into the news and a TV uh, crew went to report on the story. And the man was asked, why do you buy this homeless guy a cup of coffee every day? Well, what would you expect his answer to be? That he was helping someone in obvious need? Because he felt sorry for him? Because the guy was cold? Well, listen to what he said. I buy him the coffee because every day it's a little thing I do to make myself feel good. That's remarkable, isn't it? That is really the best that human charity can manage without the gospel. Even in our best moments, and here is a, a moment of, of generosity, even in our best moments, in our sinful nature, we are selfish. Our good is tinged with selfishness. We are turned in upon ourselves. We treat other people to meet our needs, even as we are trying to meet theirs. But when we understand the gospel, when we understand that Jesus in submission to his father, has given up his life for the sake of his bride, when we understand that other person-centered love, that we can honor another for the sake of another, it's only then that we'll really understand this business of complementarianism. Therefore, what Paul is teaching the Christians here will always be countercultural. It was countercultural in first century Corinth. It is countercultural in 21st century Edinburgh. 
But fourthly, this also means that it will make sense in any age if we teach it in a gospel context. And that's what we have to do. And when we do that, no amount of cultural baggage can get in the way of God's word. So I taught um, uh, uh, some of our students these passages at a conference uh, a little while ago and just uh, listened to a couple of testimonies of some young women who came to the conference convinced of the world's way of thinking and left feeling not oppressed but liberated. Let me just read you a couple of testimonies. Before now, I always thought a submissive wife was a weak and oppressed woman. But when I saw how Christ submits to the Father in the gospel, I saw what a beautiful relationship a godly marriage could be when it reflects that relationship. I'm so glad to hear biblical teaching on a topic about which I had such distorted views. Listen to another one. I'd always assumed that submission went willingly succumbing myself to a form of slavery. I was determined to be independent, the leader of my own life, not allowing myself to be oppressed by any man. But in learning about how Christ, in all his power and glory, submits to the Father, I was greatly challenged. The power given man isn't one to control and enslave, but to lead in Christ-like love. The submission of a woman is not a sign of weakness, as society had led me to believe, but is trusting God who created us to be different. I understand now that God needs me just as I am, a woman, so that the spreading of his gospel prevails through us to coming generations. Those young ladies were Bible-believing Christians before they studied these passages, but can you see how it was the gospel nature of this complementarian uh, business that changed their minds and they left feeling liberated rather than oppressed? Far from being an embarrassment to us, Biblical relationships should be something we speak boldly about. In God's kindness, it is best for our flourishing as a people we are created to be. However, in every age and every culture, sinful men and women will subvert the order in some way, and that's what we see happening here in Corinth. So now let's look at the issue that Paul is addressing, and for the sake of time, we're going to look at verses 4 to 6 and then 13 to 16 uh, together. Let's uh, just refresh our, our minds and read those verses again. Verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head was shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Before we look at the details, just uh, notice uh, something rather thrilling, I think, which is that Paul can move from this central Trinitarian principle in verse 3 to an application of what men and women do and don't do with their heads in church. 
Of course, that's the very thing that bemuses many readers, but I wonder if you can see how, how brilliant this is. It tells us, doesn't it, that the great truths of theology are deeply practical. It tells us that God's commands for us are not arbitrary, but connected to his nature. And it tells us that God cares about the little things, and so should we. But we can't leave it at that. We've got to work out uh, some details and work out why Paul is concerned about head coverings and what relevance that might be to us. Well, in summary, what these verses teach us is that the order that we saw in verse 3 is being subverted in the church, and that subversion is being signaled visually, causing what Paul calls shame. So let's look at this uh, over, under those headings. First of all, the order is being signaled visually. The most obvious question, and probably the most difficult in the passage, is what exactly is the nature of the head coverings Paul is talking about? Is there some sort of material covering of the head, such as a toga or a veil, scarf or hat? Or can everything Paul says be explained in terms of hairstyle? Or is both hair and material covering involved, in which case, what's the connection between them? Well, as you can imagine, there's been a lot of ink spilt on those questions. And if we dealt with every view, we'd be here till all our hair grew very long. But what can we say about these hair coverings? Well, let's start with four observations. Firstly, it is striking that Paul manages to say everything he wants to say about head coverings in four to six without using a single noun. It doesn't necessarily come across in the English, but it's all verbs and adjectives. So covered, verse 4, uncovered, verse 5, shaved, verse 5, covered, verse 6, cut off, verse 6, cut off, verse 6, shaved off, verse 6. So despite the availability of nouns for head coverings that Paul could have used to make the custom clear, there is not a single noun here. And so the effect of this is to emphasize the action of covering the head, whether with hair or material. Second observation is that whatever is going on in 4 to 6 and verse 13, he's definitely saying something in 14 and 15 about hair. And at this point, he uses some straightforward nouns, hair and covering. The third observation is that the words nature in verse 14 and given in verse 15 elevate at least part of what he is saying above a mere cultural custom. He is talking in some way about nature and what God has given to men and women, not just cultural expressions or fashions. And men tend by nature to have long hair. I know this uh, from personal experience. I'd love to have longer hair, but by nature uh, it is impossible. Women tend by nature to find it easier to grow their hair long. That's the, that's the kind of idea. Therefore, fourth observation, putting these things together, is that Paul seems to be linking a cultural custom of some kind, verses 4 to 6, about which it is impossible to be certain to a physical attribute of the different sexes in 14 and 15 about which we can be certain. So I think one of the difficulties of this passage is that there is a mixture of, of uncertainty and certainty 
There's a mixture of, of sort of vagueness and clarity. He's talking about covering the head in some kind of cultural way in the first part, and then he's linking that to nature in the second part. So what can we conclude then, bringing these observations together? Well, the very clear principle is this, and I'm sorry uh, if you're disappointed when I say this, if you're expecting the conclusion to be uh, a little bit more weighty and profound and theological, this is the conclusion that Paul is against cross-dressing. Now, it sounds so obvious when we put it like that, and maybe alarmingly unsophisticated, given the gallons of ink that have been spilt on these verses. But at the end of the day, that is what Paul is saying. So let's go back and follow the logic of the argument so far in five steps. Firstly, men and women by nature are different. Secondly, men and women by nature look different. Third step, men and women should look like men and women when praying and prophesying in church. Step four, how that difference is indicated in practice is determined to some degree by culture. But step five, those cultural practices, whether having your hair long or wearing a veil or some other covering, those cultural practices, while they change, will normally be in the grain of nature. Therefore, because men tend to have short hair, the way they express their masculinity should be in accordance with nature. They should take the hint from both nature and culture and leave the head uncovered so they look like men. Women naturally tend to have long hair. So they should behave in line with what nature has given them. They should take the hint from both nature and culture and cover the head so that they look like women. What Paul wants when men and women pray and prophesy is that they follow the visual codes that proclaim them to be men and women. Codes that are recognizable in every culture and follow the grain of creation in every culture. That's basically it. He doesn't want cross-dressing. Well, let's think about some implications from this. I think that what we long for in a passage like this is a clear red line which says men must have short hair, women must wear hats to church. And that's, as I'm sure you'll know, is, is the line that has been taken uh, by some traditions. In fact, I don't know if you've come across the, the relatively new head covering movement in some Christian circles in America. And, and, and I think this is why it's proving so attractive, because it's simple. It tells you how to dress as you go to church. But that's not quite what Paul is doing here. He's not giving us a dress code, as one might put at the bottom of an invitation to a social function, black tie, smart, casual, Always wear your hats to church. Don't wear your hat if you're a man. Nothing else is appropriate. It's not quite what he's doing. He is correcting something. He is correcting a confusion of boundaries. 
So I don't think we're going to get a thick red line in the passage which we can simply lift out and transcribe to our culture. But what we can take from this passage is the fact that there is a line to be drawn in every culture which we mustn't cross. And I think in every culture we'll instinctively know what that line is. Now, whenever we make a point like that, we find ourselves on a knife edge, don't we? As we draw those lines, we have to be very careful not to fall into yet another trap. In our efforts to maintain the biblical distinctions between genders, we can easily slip into silly cultural stereotyping, which equates the essence of masculinity or femininity with a particular cultural expression of them. For example, men being insensitive and loving sport, women being bad drivers and addicted to shopping. Those are just silly cultural stereotypes. So we've got to be careful as we draw these lines that we don't fall into them. After all, I'm speaking in a country where the men actually do wear skirts occasionally. <laughs> Biblical truth, therefore, should subvert both the cultural stereotypes against which the world rightly objects, but also against the tyranny of symmetry, which is their only answer. The point here is that Paul expects the universal principle of ordered relationships that begins in the Trinity is built into humanity, is expressed in the gospel. He wants that order to be expressed visually in culturally recognizable ways. So men and women are to be true to their created selves in doing ministry, to be easily recognizable as such, not blurring the distinctions or crossing the boundaries between male and female. So to put it very, very simply, as we do ministry together, we should look like the people God has made us to be in ways that our culture easily recognizes. Well, why is this important? Because blurring the boundaries results in something Paul calls shame. The idea of shame is behind the verb translated dishonor in verses 4 and 5, which has the sense of a sort of humiliation. It's also the concept behind the adjective disgraceful in verse 6 and the noun in verse 14, shame. All of these are strong words with a similar set of meaning, shame, disgrace, dishonor, humiliation. Now, we have to tread very carefully here because this is where many Bible readers and commentators go down the wrong path, in my opinion. We can easily assume that this language of shame must be connected to immodesty or sexually provocative behavior, which results in distraction in church. So one commentator, for example, says, Paul's primary interest in this passage is to prevent women from being ogled as sex objects during worship. But this is simply not what Paul is saying, is it? The clue in verses 4 to 6 is that men and women are not bringing shame upon themselves, but upon their head. That is, their metaphorical or spiritual head. So the man is bringing shame on his head, who is Christ. The woman is bringing shame on her head, who is man. And shame in the context of the passage is not to do with dressing in a provocative way for church. It's about going against God's created order that we saw in verse 3. 
The masculine appearance of women signaled an attitude of independence, which Paul emphasizes with the comment about being shaved in verses 5 and 6. If she wants to look like a man, she may as well go the whole way and get rid of her feminism, feminist appearance, sorry, feminine appearance already. Likewise, the feminine appearance of men signaled a posture and attitude which refuses to take responsibility for headship. And so the shame of verses 4 and 5 and the disgrace of verse 6 and 14 is actually not a social shame at all. It's not the red-faced embarrassment of forgetting your school uniform on Mufti Day or of walking down the street and realizing that your buttons have come undone. It's the shame of disordered relationships. And therefore, and it's very important that we see this, the shame that Paul is concerned with is not a shame that is registered in the eyes of the world at all. It's a shame that is registered in the eyes of God. The church was in danger of failing to be what God had called it to be. Remember, a little window of God's order which shames the world. Instead of that, they had taken the world's values into the church and were shaming themselves in the eyes of God. It's very important that we see that. And that's the reason Paul wants to put it right. And this brings us over the page to order explained in verses 7 to 12. God wants the creation order to be restored in church and visually expressed as men and women do ministry together. And these verses uh, explain why. Now this part of the passage is very closely argued and the argument rests as it did this morning on Paul's use of the creation account in Genesis. This time Genesis 1 and 2 rather than Genesis 2 and 3. And I think the best way of opening up this, this quite densely argued passage is to think about four related concepts and uh, then bring them together at the end. So those concepts are image, glory, interdependence, and then finally we'll look at those angels. So firstly, let's think about image in the passage. It's important to see that Paul has both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 in mind in verses 7, 8, and 9. In verse 7, he clearly has Genesis 1 in mind because that phrase, image, is very distinctly a word that he's picking up from Genesis 1. So look again at verse 7. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image of God. In Genesis 1.27, the creation of humanity as male and female is an expression of the image of God. So have a look at Genesis 1.27 on the sheet. And you can see, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but you can see that the parallelism of the Hebrew poetry makes this clear. Uh, there are three lines, three connected ideas. Image, image, and then in the third line, male and female replaces the word image, which I think tells you very clearly that part of being made in the image of God is this business of being made male and female. The image of God has two parts, male and female, and together they reflect something about God, probably his relational, personal nature. In verse 8 and 9, Paul is clearly thinking about Genesis 2. 
he is referring now to the origin of the first woman from the man's side and her role as his helper in the garden. So have a look at verse 8 and 9. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. In both her origins and her role, the woman corresponds to and differs from man, and together, in those complementary roles, they reflect the image of God. Well, that's the first concept, then, that men and women together, in complementary roles, reflect the image of God. And it's in that context that Paul introduces the second concept, which is glory. There are three aspects of the way glory is used in the Bible that we need to bring together to see the force of Paul's use of it here. The first is that in its most general sense, glory is something that matters. It's weighty, it's important, it matters. Secondly, the Bible often connects the word glory to revelation, the revelation of someone's true nature. For example, in John chapter 2, when Jesus turns water into wine at the wedding at Cana, John says that this miracle revealed Jesus' glory to his disciples. That is, they knew Jesus, they saw the miracle, they knew him as he really is. The miracle revealed his glory, it exposed something of his true character and power. It was a moment of unveiling of glory. The third thing we need to understand, though, is that in the Bible, one person can bring glory to another. That is, one person can bring out the true nature of another. So have a look at uh, the verses in the, on the sheet from John's Gospel, where we see this most often, where Jesus connects his glory to the glory of the Father. So John 1.14, we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John is saying there that as we look at Jesus, we come to see the glory of God. It is Jesus who brings out the glory of God for us to see. Or 8.54, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. This is the, 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 the reversal of that, isn't it? This time it is God who is glorifying Jesus. It is God that is allowing us to see the glory of Jesus. Jesus brings glory to the Father, which means he reveals the true nature of the Father. The Father brings glory to Jesus. We grasp who Jesus really is. Now this relationship in which one person glorifies another, reveals the true nature of another, is exactly Paul's point here. So look at it in verse 7. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Paul is bringing Genesis 2 to bear on Genesis 1 and the idea of the image of God. That is, God's purpose of creating asymmetry within mankind, that is, two different people in his image, is to bring glory, to reveal God's true nature. So if you can imagine a world where there were only men, 
we wouldn't properly know the image of God in humanity. We need both. However, that glory is not seen by men and women acting independently of each other, but is seen when men and women work together in a complementary way. And so if you look with me at the second part of that verse, the woman is the glory of man. We can only understand man when we, only un- when we understand woman. We only understand what man is. We see the glory of man when we see man in contrast to woman and see woman acting in a complementary relationship to man. And then we understand what God is like. We see the image and glory of God by looking at humanity together in a complementary relationship. Men acting as men in relation to women. Women acting as women in relation to men. There we see the glory of God. The third concept, concept, interdependence in 11 to 12, makes this even clearer. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. I need to mention that there's a problem with this particular translation. And we need to understand this to see the point. This translation interprets Paul's point about interdependence in terms of the origin and survival of the human race. Woman needs man because she came from man originally, but now man needs woman because every man was given birth to by his mother who was a woman. That's what this translation is saying, isn't it? But there's a number of reasons to reject that interpretation. For a start, the word born is not there in the original. It's just been added by the translator. It simply says, just as woman from man, so man of woman. (coughs) Secondly, Paul is still thinking here of Genesis 2. And there's no childbirth Uh, theme in Genesis 2, rather I take it that this is a description based on Adam's joyful recognition of the woman in Genesis 2.23. So imagine Adam and all the animals parading in front of him, and he gives them a name, doesn't he? Dolphin, cat, camel, dog, monkey, None of them are suitable helpers, is God's comment. None of them are suitable. And then comes Eve, and a paraphrase of Genesis 2.23 is something like this. Hello? And uh, Genesis 2.23, the uh, second time a little bit of poetry has been given to us in the Bible, is this wonderful recognition of the woman who is not animal but not man and it's as he sees her that he suddenly realizes who he is the man said this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man This is why God parades the animals past him beforehand, I presume, so he can see how different Eve is. She's not just a new animal. She's the image of himself, bone of my bone, but different to himself. And 
he recognizes himself at last in the face of another. Well, that brings us to the last concept, which is these angels. And I've left this till last because I think this is our route back to the context in the church at Corinth. So look at verse 10 again with me. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. I think that's a better translation uh, than some. It's not that she ought to have authority over her head. It's that she ought to have authority on her head. But Paul says this is because of the angels. What does he mean by that? Well, what do we know about angels? Under the old covenant, angels were messengers of God. You see that all the way through the Old Testament. In fact, the word angel really just means messenger. Angels were sent from heaven to earth. You can see this continuing for a little while in the New Testament. There's a flurry of angelic activity around the infancy narratives where they announce the birth of Jesus and signal the, the transition from the old age to the new. But I wonder if you've ever noticed that at the coming of Jesus, the role of angels changes in the Bible and they go really from being messengers to being witnesses. They now stand watch as the heavenly witnesses of the spiritual realities on earth that now exist because of the resurrection of Jesus. The angels are the powers within the invisible world which are intensely interested in the preaching of the gospel and the gathering of God's people into church. Hence, for example, their great joy over one sinner who repents, Luke 15 or their joyful participation in the heavenly assembly, which is expressed in the local church, Hebrews 12. The great concern of the angels now is the going forth of the gospel into the world, the time of God's gathering as Jesus brings his people in before he returns. In other words, because of the angels means be careful how you conduct yourselves in church because the invisible universe is watching on. I don't know if you've ever thought of, of the local church gathering as, as, as being a place full of angels. But Hebrews chapter 12 tells us very clearly that it is because the local church is an expression of the heavenly reality and the angels are watching on. It reminds me of a very embarrassing moment I had uh, many years ago I found myself in the sort of vestibule of a church building, a bit like this one, uh, which I assumed was an empty church building, and I was behind the glass doors, and I came across a little bell rope, and something inside me just said, pull it. I'd had this uh, long, unfulfilled ambition to ring a church bell, and so I got to work uh, quite vigorously. I should just explain that I was a, a kind of a, I was a teenager at the time, and uh, I just thought I'd let rip, and I rang the bell with all my heart. And then I turned around, looked through the glass doors just like this, at a congregation of about 400 people watching me. <laughs> well, there's one kind of shame. And Paul is saying, don't forget, as you do church, you are not alone. The invisible universe is watching on. And so whatever the world may think, 
Don't let the world's values dictate what we do in church. Let what we do in church reveal to the world the good order of God. And so that brings us to verse 16, delighting in order. Look at how Paul ends this passage. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. One commentator I read suggested that this is a a slightly uh, peevish conclusion in which Paul, aware of the weakness of his argument, finally throws his hands in the air and just insists that they jolly well do what he tells them, uh, whether they understand it or agree or not. Well, of course that's not right. So why does he end like this? He ends like this because he knows that for them and for us, this order he has been talking about will always be made to seem by the powerful currents of culture to be abnormal. Since Genesis 3, the world has been covered in disorder and shame, as Genesis 2.25 reminds us. Subversion and competition, the brutality of oppression, the tyranny of symmetry, the blurring of distinctions, confusion, muddle, that is normal. But the churches of God, these little windows of a new world that is coming, must be different. These gatherings of God's people must, of all places on earth, be where men and women delight in God's order in the midst of a world of disorder and shame. Well, we've looked at a very close argument of the Apostle Paul's. And as you, we look at these kind of arguments, I don't know about you, but sometimes I can, I can feel that there's a, there's a sort of fog that uh, sets in. So I want to just end with a very straightforward uh, four-point summary of what we have said. Firstly, in verse 2 we saw that Paul wants his church to live with gospel integrity, to display God's glory and wisdom to a shameful and foolish world, and this will include men and women exercising their God-given roles in a complementary partnership. Secondly, in verse 3, Paul ties this complementary partnership between men and women to Christ's headship and submission displayed in the gospel. Thirdly, in verses 4 to 6 and 13 to 16, we saw that this complementary partnership between men and women is to be expressed visually in the church gathering in ways that are in the grain of both creation and culture. Fourthly, in 7 to 12, this complementary partnership between men and women together makes... God's glory visible to the world and to the invisible watching universe. What the angels long to see in Corinth then and in every local church is not an uncritical reflection of the world in its sexual blurring and symmetry, but a little picture of the future when Christ himself will come like a husband to establish a perfect relationship with his bride, the church, in the perfectly restored new creation which glorifies God. Why don't we pray that we will be people who delight 
in that reality. Let's pray.